quarterly slush pile. We take more time than other editorial boards, but we stand behind our methodology, so much so that we're going to share our process with you through this podcast. Welcome to our editorial table. I'm Kathleen Volkmiller, and I um, am co-editor of the Painter Bride Quarterly, and I run the uh, graduate program in publishing here at Drexel University, where this podcast is being recorded. I um, publish creative nonfiction and um, personal essay. I've been in Salon and New York Times, and I have a piece coming out in Oprah next month, so I'm really excited about that. Um, and I love just saying that, Oprah! Um, I would, uh, uh, in the studio with me today is Isabella. Hello, um, I'm Isabella Fidanza, and I'm an English major at Drexel, and I've um, been a reader for the PBQ board for over a year and have done um, internships with the Drexel Publishing Group three consecutive times, and I've had a real blast, so I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here today. Wonderful, thank you. So, um, Jason Schneiderman, I'd like you to tell us a bit about yourself and make sure you tell us where you are right now so I can picture you. This is Jason Schneiderman. I am at a yellow Parsons table that my husband bought at a thrift store decades ago that I use as a desk in um, our office slash guest room in our brownstone in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, although it's not really a brownstone. We had the brownstoning done ourselves. It's actually a brick. (laughs) (laughs) I love your I'm the associate editor at Painted Bride Quarterly. I am an assistant professor at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. I have written three books of poems, and I am the editor of Oxford University Press's collection, Queer, a Reader for Writers, which is a freshman composition text. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Um, Every episode is exciting to me. And today's is especially exciting because we're doing two new things that we hope to do on the regs. And one of them is to have um, an alumni guest editor with us today. And um, we are honored beyond belief to welcome Major Jackson. Good afternoon. Hello. Hi. Tell us about yourself and where you are right now. Sure. I'm Major Jackson, and I feel like I'm moonlighting right now because I'm poetry editor editor of the Harvard Review, and I teach at the University of Vermont. We are on spring break, so I am uh, talking or hanging out from Oviedo, Florida, where my wife lives, and right now... I'm looking at palm trees sway oh. in the wind. That sounds really nice. Very <laughs> nice. Very nice. meeting in an hour. Well, you win. I'm in a cozy audio studio, but it's um, it probably as opposite world as I can be from Florida looking at palm trees. And it's all soundproofed and, <laughs> you know, modern and lovely and cozy we'll just hold hands isabella okay yeah okay (laughs) um so uh uh, marion wren my co-editor is going to join us a little bit late today uh so when she does we'll make sure that we have her come in and say hi um but we should just jump right into the work today um all of the poems can be found on our podcast notes, which are found at our PBQ site, pbq.drexel.edu. Um, we're going to start with um, three poems from Kathleen Sheeter Bernano. These were submitted for an unthemed issue, but I'd like to start off um, by saying that I think 
these next poems would be very well suited for our locals issue. Um, so our call for papers on the locals issues was simply, uh, let us be able to read your poem and not have to read your bio, right? So we wanna know where you're writing from. And I think these met that meet that criteria. Um, who would like to start off the reading? Who would like to read 30th Street Station? I'll be happy to. Thank you. 30th Street Station. Sweet old man in a tweed cap, soft shoes, soft brown skin says, do you need a cab? Yes, I say. And my heart is laughing. This is how I get sometimes. You look like my second grade teacher, Mrs. Richmond. I always loved Mrs. Richmond, he says. He ushers me to a silver Lexus. This is not a cab. This is a bait and switch. Behind the wheel, the driver, 300 pounds of muscle, arms like hams, a diamond ring on each pinky, a diamond in each earlobe, a red baseball cap backward. I think a piece of his ear is missing. I think he has a tattoo on his face. Our eyes meet in the rear view mirror. Clang, clang goes my danger meter. Don't get in the car, says everyone. So I get in the car. By 45th and Locust, turns out his name is Steve. Turns out he buried his younger sister this year and his mom the year before. She was way too easy on his brother with cerebral palsy, 51 years old and doesn't like to get out of bed. I read him a poem about my daughter from my book. And then he wants to remember my name and gets out a tiny pencil to write it down. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, this, this poem kind of uh, makes me think about the cliche that we say about movies like it made me laugh it made me cry i uh, <laughs> i i wonderfully get pulled all over the place emotionally with this one yeah i definitely agree yeah i'll i'll echo that i mean to some extent um i'm a sucker of poems that kind of do a reverse of the portrait of someone that is kind of opens the poem um, such that by the end um, there is this kind of kind of profound humanizing of of someone that we or others some people might encounter as dangerous um, and often I'm I'm not a fan of of work that is as accessible as this. But I think when it's done well, it um, it kind of matches up with the material, and this is this is an everyday person, and so um, it makes sense that there's not much kind of in the way of high rhetorical language or um, or or even a kind of formalism to the to the poem. That's really interesting. I. I even how you started this, that you're not necessarily usually a fan of poems that are this accessible. There really is nothing to unpack here. It's clear and direct. And um, 
Well, don't, but um, I was going to say, do you think, because I think you and Major and I know the story of what happened to her daughter. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so a poem about meeting a stranger who should seem scary, but turns out not to be um, against, I, I don't know, to the, to the uh, Isabella, do you guys know what happened to Kathy's daughter and, and what the no. book of poems? So as, as someone with no context, I mean, I, I do... Um, I follow Major's train of thought in terms of, I guess, being a little surprised that there's there isn't anything as uh, to unpack as Kathy phrased it. But I guess for me, the reason why the approachability works is um, you get this sense that the uh, the speaker of the poem is a little rebellious, but I think rebellious in a way, um, really refusing to take people uh, at at face value. You know, their surface level appearance. So I think this kind of revelation that comes up at the end of the poem doesn't feel hokey it feels like an organic um you know emotion that this person is experiencing so uh, i think that's probably why it worked for me despite the fact that everything is quite simplistic and laid out on the table yeah but no i don't have the the context that you guys probably do so yeah well i don't think it's necessary though jason are you saying that you think one well i mean yeah her, her daughter was killed by um uh, okay. a and sure. so the contrast of someone, you know, that one feels safe with the people one knows mm-hmm. is often not. Mm-hmm. Whereas one often feels unsafe with the people one doesn't know, but often is. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I don't think that that's necessary. Maybe that's adding another level for you. Yeah. Um, you know, a layer of richness that, um, but I don't know if it's necessary. Yeah, I mean, having that knowledge certainly does add some richness to it, but without it, I do think that you still get something out of the piece, but it's good to good to know what's going on there anyway. Mm-hmm. One of the, one of the um, I mean, in, in terms of the debate of, I, I do feel as though if somehow the poem, well, you know, if this is interesting because I, I do believe there's there's something to be said for a body of work and how poems kind of speak back to um, or add to what we come to know of a, of a poet's kind of material. And, um, and Kathy's terrific book kind of, kind of laid out for her um, that this is important subject matter and, and one that, that will probably inform um, the work to come. So I, on, on some hand, I, I don't think it needs to embed that specific history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's already self-reflexive enough in, in that kind of final stanza that the speaker is a poet, that the speaker has published a book, that the speaker has written a poem about um, her daughter. What I find most compelling is that last statement um, he wants to remember my name, gets out a tiny pencil to write it down. Um, I've had that same experience, not in this, not in the same context, but just the, the humanizing kind of uh, exchange between uh, strangers who have met who um, want to uh, somehow stay in each other's lives. And that ending image I found along with um, the repetition that is used in the poem to help create some sort of uh, music or sonic texture 
to this anecdote. Um, I found it quite convincing. Um, yeah. I love the tiny pencil. He's <laughs> <laughs> like giant, big, meaty hand. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great image. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't know why I like this a lot too, but when she says, I think a piece of his ear is missing, I think he has a tattoo on his face. You know, like she's trying to not stare too hard. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like that a lot too. I like all that specificity. And then the tiny pencil is really does add so much it, he, it isn't just he wrote it down he gets out a tiny pencil to write it down I love that. there's lots of um, kind of this poem kind of defies a lot of uh, typical poetry workshop do's and don'ts and one of them that annoys me is somehow we have banned exclamation points from uh, poems, and I understand the logic why, which is um, they carry so much emotion that should be found in the language and in the form itself. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I, who came up with this commit? You know, is there some sort of <laughs> committee that said yeah. this year we will ban exclamation points? And you see them um, working here, right? That's true. I, I also, I, there's something silly about the scene. You know, don't get in the car, says everyone. Says everyone. I mean, so it's sort of from like a children's book or something. I mean, obviously, you, you can't have everyone in the entire, like, you know, these right. chorus rules say, don't get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know um, what? It's sort of a beautiful, you know, moment. Yeah. And the exclamation points are both in someone else's voice, Major. That's why she's allowed, I think. That's why the poetry police aren't going to get her. Because well, it's, it's except the, for right? the second stanza from the bottom, that's hers, I think. Well, but you know what? It I feels to me. So um, the line is she's telling us what the driver's telling her, and one of the things is he lost his sister, he lost his mom, and then he says she was way too easy on his brother with cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. fifty-one mm-hmm. years old, and doesn't like to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. I think the emphasis was the drivers. She's yeah. she's quoting the driver. Right. And, and um, just because we're sort of, I think, touching on this, I guess it's really a dark humor that's poking out in between sure. the lines of the poem. Those couple of lines about the cerebral palsy really stuck in my head. Uh, it's just, if Tim Fitz was here, um, <laughs> who's one of our other um, editorial board members, I think he would probably say something like, I'm going to be thinking about a phrase for months, um, because I think it really gives you this idea here um, that... The subject matter that's being woven throughout the poem um, is dealing with these sort of hard themes, but it's addressing it in a way that's an everyday kind of a scene. And it, we've got this humor to it because we have a scene where, um, you know, the writer is trying to not be judgmental and is discovering things along the way. So I think that um, is a, a great use of an exclamation point, you know, just um, using that to quote the the driver. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think last episode we decided that if that if we're all kind of, I think we're all on the same page, that we're not needing to make any points. Um, I think it might be time to vote. Um, I feel a little uncomfortable because we're an even number right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Until Marion joins us, there's a high chance of an arm wrestling contest breaking out. <laughs> um, so, but let's try. I'm so- an excellent arm wrestler online. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So, um, 
If Major and Jason can just text their uh, votes, and Isabella and I will do the PBQ one, two, three, shoot in the studio. All right. One, Let's go. two, three, shoot. What do we have from the internet? The suspense is killing me. I'm sorry. I'm having a, I, I can't find the text spot. <laughs> I had the text window last time, and I don't have the text spot this time. Um, Major, did you do have the text box? I do not either. I'm trying to. (laughs) It should be on the right hand side. I'm actually texting you. Like on my phone. You're going to text my cell phone? Yes, I'm texting your cell phone because I don't have the box. Okay. Major, you want to text me as well until you find Sure, the that's text a good box. idea. Yeah. <laughs> bear, bear with us as we maneuver through the technical difficulties. Like you think you have these things to work out. We'll be, um, we're holding our listeners in such suspense over our vote here. I see Jason's. Um, and we have two more from Kathy. So this is, um, this will be great. We're waiting. And it is a yes. <laughs> it's a unanimous yes. Four virtual thumbs up. Thank goodness. Four thumbs up. Um, all righty then. So great way to start episode four. And let's move on to the pool. Who's going to read that one? I'll do this one. Thank you, Isabella. Okay. The pool. My 15-year-old son, adopted from Chile, pedals his bike back from the pool, says some boys just called him a spick, and my brain explodes. Ping, ping, says my brain. Wait, says Louie. I get in the car, gun the gas pedal, stomp past two teenage lifeguards at the gate. On my way to the deep end. Did you call my son a name? I I call across the water. To two skinny white boys, no older than 12, their goose-pimpled arms hugging their concave chests. They nod. Any minute, they might cry and their mothers might come over. Listen, you. Words hurt. I am yelling. Don't ever say that word again. Do you understand? Or I'll come back here and beat the shit out of you. Do you understand? Open-mouthed, they nod. Maybe I didn't make that threat aloud, but we all heard it. At home, Louis said he was holding their heads underwater for fun which is why they got mad in the first place. So um, while we process that poem, I'm going to um, welcome Marion Wren to the podcast. She's here with us now. Hi, Mary. Hi, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Marion. Welcome. Hi. I'm so glad you said yes to Kathy's first poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. So, Hi, so jump in the pool with us immediately, Mare. Oh my God, I that last stanza that just like breaks my heart and makes me laugh and and makes me love this this poet's righteousness and mm-hmm. indignation and humiliation. Um, so I I'm gonna I'll I'll say that there's something about the way it sort of torques and captures all three of those emotions in its in its little final curtsy. Yeah, the reversal at the end definitely made this for me. Um, and I like the fact that we have this, to- I think the tone is not that the the writer is defending her son, which I appreciate. You know, there's no sugarcoating at the end. It's kind of just 
leaving it as is for the for the readers to also feel this sense of indignation. And I really appreciate that she left that intact. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, to me, the again the um, the, the turn at the end is just a way, a wonderful way of complicating a narrative that most parents would understand and connect with. I mean, there's that kind of kind of um, parenting that is just visceral, where you just want to protect your kid, particularly, um, you know, in this day and age, children of color. And so um, <laughs> the fact that the kid is it's up to their own kind of um, mischief. Uh, yeah, mischief. <laughs> Unfortunate um, mischief, maybe. <laughs> kind of undercuts um, the indignation and yeah. Yeah. makes it, a, again, a, just a very real piece of truth, I would say. And that's one of my favorite uh, values of poems is where they give us a truth that I knew it was there all along, but I'm reminded of it. Yeah, that was a great way to put it. Um, I really like, like the imagery in the third stanza that she gives us about the other boys, not necessarily um, emphasizing the fact of any particular race or, or even physical traits, but I think she really captures kind of the lameness and vulnerability <laughs> of kids who tease other kids at this age. You know, just really... Um, emphasizing the fact that they're skinny, they're sort of just uh, vulnerable and hugging their their arms against their chests and really aren't that tough after all when they're confronted with some kind of real-world element. And um, I just really like that she brought that uh, to life, you know, for, for older readers especially. Yeah, you know, I, I want to jump in one more time and just say there's really something so delightful in the three ways um, the narrative kind of works and that, and the, the person that, that I is working here. It's like, she's a participant in, in this event. Right. And she's recalling it for us. Um, and sort of like just witnessing what happened and participating and yelling. And then the reversal at the end reminds us that it's actually an apology too. like, there's a, there's a quality of regret, um, of being played of, you know what I mean? Of, of being yeah. caught up, um, in that visceral response. So it's, it's a tight, um, like tightly compacted, like array of emotions that she gets at with this, like seemingly straightforward story. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you just said straightforward story because I really appreciate at the end that we get two surprises, right? Yeah. Because when she says, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, do you understand? <laughs> I, I believe she's really saying it, right? right so that right. line, maybe I didn't make that thread aloud, but we all heard it. Yeah. I, I'm laughing aloud at that, right? And then we get the reveal. And then it makes you, you go back to the first stanza and Louis says, wait, right? Louis, Louis says, wait, when she's just like in the car, going to take care of these kids. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. I can just feel all of those emotions. But when we, when we see Louis saying, wait, like you just think any kid doesn't want his mom tearing mom, down to the right. pool to yell at people. Right. So it's just um, kind of like reward, reward, reward for reading. You know? I like the Maybe it's just me feeling this way, but I think there's a quality of hyperbole to the whole um, crafting of the poem that I like because I think maybe it's just the the intensity of 
the imagery of gunning the gas pedal, jumping in the car, I sort of feel like it's a little short cartoon and Supermom is jumping in the car and is going to go and um, talk to these kids and put them in their place. Um, so I think that there's still this element of humor that's being brought in here, even though, again, the topic is is important to her as a mother and serious to her as a mother. But I like the fact that it's not too aggressive. I don't know if that makes sense, but I don't know. Again, that could just be me mm-hmm. bringing that. But Well, always, right? Jason, do you have anything to say or, or should we? No, I, don't know, I guess I, I'm sort of on like a different place. Like the reversal for me was like a little distressing. Like, I don't know. I, 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 I like there's this, I, I know I'm being humorless here, but like there's this part of me that like almost is distressed that like the last stanza sort of says that he brought it on himself. And like, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I'm having, like I, I felt like a lot of the moves that worked really well in the last poem don't work as well for me here, mm-hmm. particularly with like, you know, I mean, in the power dynamics, you know, it's like the, the the son is 15 and the kids who are being critiqued are 12 and small and tiny. And he's clearly like much bigger than they are. I, I don't know. Like I, I, there's this part of me that's sort of like, you know, because, because I feel like the suggestion is that she wouldn't have done this if she knew the full circumstances and then i feel like is this a justification of using a racial slur in order to like get back at someone with more power than you which i know is is um may, may make me seem like a little uh uh i guess sjw or politically correct but i don't know there, there was there was a lot about it where like the dynamics kind of felt the the racial dynamics felt um more fraught to me than the poem was kind of giving them credit for being. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll add a little to that. I mean, um, just in terms of the racial politics of America, the pool um, has been, you know, one of those kind of contested sites that kind of makes, um, that is both, um, it makes kind of headline news, right. uh, but also one of those things that you can kind of, see people in the privacy of their own homes kind of talking about, well, you know, you go to this pool, you don't go to that pool, you know, thinking about that period. And I think this poem kind of asserts that there's still a little bit more work to be done around it. And so all those feel, all those kind of power dynamics that you're talking about, I think, um, you know, kind of, again, get at the complexity of it all. Like we haven't, you know, in this so-called post-racial, post-Obama world, kind of transcended these things. And I think you're right to feel those, feel a sense of um, uh, ambivalence about about the mother's role and and the speaker. Um, not, I don't think the speaker is saying in the end that the kid brought it upon himself. But again, just kind of alluding at what is one of the real truths about interaction between kids. No one is angelic uh, in some of these stories. Oh, yeah. I mean, and um, not that it is necessary for the poem, but I mean, we don't really know, uh, I guess, exactly the kind of, I kind of assumed that this was a city setting, but it could 
be a suburban setting, in which case there might be, a, I guess, slightly different um, implications there, but really good things that you pointed out, Major. Some really nice stuff. Um, and I, I wonder, Kathy, um, was it submitted for the locals issue, or was this just a straight submission no, to no, the I, um, uh, I had mentioned that it they were submitted to unthemed, but I think they okay. all should all three of the ones we're discussing would work for locals. I, for they, locals, they were submitted yeah. for unthemed, but I think they all speak to locals. So uh, I I asked that because I think the way she's even got her lines sitting, like, did you call my son a name or listen you words hurt, and even <laughs> beat the shit out of you? Do you understand? Like, there's. The way they sit on the line, I can just so hear a regional accent. Mm. Like it just sounds so like very much like a Philadelphia threat, sounds right? Like <laughs> I'm going to beat the shit out of you. It sounds <laughs> silly. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think we should vote. I move. I vote that we vote. Mm. Um, if Major and uh, Jason weren't able to find their text area. Um, on on the hangout, so you can all three they're, they're text me alone. if you want. You can all three yeah. text me if you want. Then wait, Kathy, I I can't text you, um, and I can't find the text button on the hangouts either. So I'm going to join that team. You can the text box in the email. So if you go to Gmail, you should be able to. Um, fancy. All right. Yeah. No. Okay. Okay, you ready? Yeah. So Isabella and I are going to do the one, two, three, shoot in person. All right. You guys text away. One, two, three, shoot. I got a yes from Florida. I got one no. It was a yes from Abu Dhabi. And a yes from Abu Dhabi. So it is in. It's four to one. <laughs> so, uh, PBQ's uh, democracy. All right. Let's move on. We got one more from Kathy. It's on um, Jersey's Bar. I, I'm just going to, I live in New Jersey, so I'm going to read this. All right. Cool, All right. <laughs> it's different, though. Jersey's Bar. I love my rum and coke. I love everybody tonight. Even the young roofer who has drunk himself shit-faced on Budweiser. He stands very still, tries not to wobble when he, woo, sees his reflection in the mirror behind the bar. Seems I've known this guy all my life. Tomorrow morning, he'll show up at his mom's house, all scraped up with a chipped tooth and a story about some asshole in the bar. Should I take his keys? Should I save him from himself? Should I call somebody who loves him? I sip my drink. I smile at the band. Tap, tap, tap goes my foot. So I, I, you can't see this if you're not looking at the actual um, manuscript, but that line tries not to robble when he, whoa, that's set off with commas and italics. And I love that switch into his voice. Yeah. That's really. Yeah. These, uh, the poems are all on the PPQ website. So they will be able to read along with us. Yeah, you can I, I thought this was really successful. I enjoyed this a lot. Jason, we are on 
opposite sides of the room today. <laughs> I think it's a, I, the title is terrific, but I, I think it's hard to open up a poem with I love fill in the blank. Um, yeah. The sentiment I understand um, that kind of, particularly when you're slightly inebriated and, you know, being a, a good drunk many times in my life, you just love the world. Sure. Um, I think there's an, I, I'm not sure if that's the most fruitful opening, however. I was lost after that opening stanza. Yeah, I actually really like the direction that the poem goes in, but I do feel like the first stanza uh, is not the strongest opening that there could have there could have been for this. So that was a little disappointing. I almost I don't know I almost wish you could take one of the later stanzas and throw it up at the beginning, almost as a a bold way to just see how we're how we're gonna do this, but. It, it, it's not okay that she's just setting up the scene because it immediately jumps from her to the roofer, right? I love my rum and coke, and then the whole rest of the poem's about the roofer until it comes back to her deciding to chill again. I think almost if you could have just taken the first stanza out and started with the second stanza, it would even be a little bit more captivating. But Oh, no, I, I, I'm going to stick with my love for I love my rum and coke. I think that's a great <laughs> <laughs> I do. I love my rum and coke. <laughs> All right. If whatever we decide on this poem, maybe that's the T-shirt slogan um, for this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, I I want to I want to talk about the shift at the end, right? So here we have it again. I sip my drink. I smile at the band. Tap 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 goes my my foot, and there is such like a kind of dangerous ambivalence there. Like the place she lands is is like. I don't know if she's back in love with the place or she's distanced from it, or if she's like letting him going to, you know, drive off into his chip tooth. Like what I think this, the, right, right. For me, the sense of the poem is a little, if buzzes out right there. So it's hard for me to, to know what the intention is. Um, yeah. And yet I have to tell you, like, I, I love being in this bar. <laughs> you know, there's something about, I know that bar. I yeah. know that it feels it feels rich and richly detailed in the in the sparseness of what she gives us. But um, I can't I can't quite figure the emotion that she's that she's um, coming upon. I, I thought it was a rescue fantasy that's kind of abandoned because the speaker knows that she doesn't have the power to do that, right? So like, yeah. it's, it's sort of fantasizing about taking this roofer's keys about you know rescuing him but you can't right i mean the speaker can't and so she goes back to drinking yeah um, I, mean, I, I sort of enjoyed that moment of kind of wrecking mm. the person fantasizing about rescue and then sort of letting that go yeah, I, I agree that's where that's how i read it as well it was really simple it just made a full circle for me this roofer coming across her perception of as she's enjoying her drink in the bar uh he is a momentary blip across her screen and you know maybe if it didn't say i smile at the band and i sip the my drink that we already know she loves right she's back grooving mm -hmm. and and that moment of thinking about the roofers over mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i guess i i wasn't like marianne able to decide if the smile is just a smile of bliss or a smile of kind of deviousness but either way uh definitely the 
the line about calling somebody who loves him is a clue and that this is a, a fantasy of some sort. So I think that certainly mm. works fine. Do you like the detail about I the don't know. I, I'm, 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 I think this poem is lacking in authentic, authenticity. Um, mm. I think it's reliant on a class portrait that um, I find doesn't kind of push me beyond familiar kind of. Um, it is familiar. You know, it's Jersey, roofer, he's drunk, uh, chipped tooth. I don't know. It's, I'm it's, so homesick. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think there's something overly familiar with this. Yeah with this That's scenario that um, uh, I, I think that, you know, the ending feels authentic in terms of, you know, do you help this person? Do you, but it doesn't plumb enough of the, of the, again, the complexity of the, of the situation. I don't mind set up, but I think I just want a little bit more from, yeah. from the poem than what's here. That makes sense. I mean, the poem itself, I think, is not a lot. This isn't no. about a lot. It's about sitting in a bar and seeing this dude and having these Major, talks. does it make any difference if this is for the locals issue, if you think about it in terms of theme rather than kind of poem qua poem? No, I, 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 in fact, I think that that criteria puts an even greater pressure or demand uh, because if someone is reading this as a Jersey or a, a, Philly, I think a, yeah. a Philly person, then I think what happens is um, they're going to they're going to be aware of that, and there'll be the kind of the mirror thrown up to knife moment of recognition. But don't we go to art to kind of penetrate beyond those kind of surface projections? Otherwise we are just throwing up a mirror around us and, and not coming to understand um, in the way that good art does um, some of what we might not have noticed before. Yeah, we certainly don't get, in terms of a picture of this person, is if she's just writing the poem uh, because it's something that she happened to notice, um, it doesn't seem like it's quite good enough. I mean, if this person has a compelling look or there's something about him that made her notice him or there's something more to the situation where it's true that we're, we're not getting that um, conveyed. So that's, that's a fair point. Should we vote? I think so. I think we should vote. So remote, remote voters and in the studio, here we go. One, two, three, vote. Okay, so there are oh dear. four, uh, yes, three no's, two yeses. So that's a no for Jersey's Bar. And um, I think Kathy Sheeter-Bernano did pretty well, though. We took two out of three. Mm -hmm. That ain't bad. Yeah. So um, looking at the time and having a question for you guys, we can um, read the... Uh, three poems that came about the monsters issue, or we can have um, our first ever occasional segment. What, we want to vote on what do you want? You want to feel like reading more poetry or feel like having a conversation? 
Um, I'll, let's go for the conversation. Let's let's mix it up. One vote I for the conversation. That. I like oh, that idea. All right, all right, cool. Well, that's enough voices. <laughs> that's enough votes. We're moving on then. Um, so we'd like to do some special things on um, certain episodes. And uh, what we're going to do today uh, is one of our uh, occasional segments. This segment is called Something Random I Saw in a Literary Magazine This Week. Um, so this week I was on Carve Magazine. It's run out of Texas and publishes only fiction and derives its name and ideology from Raymond Carver. And on their submit page, they make you an offer. If you become a subscriber at the time of submission, they promise to get you a response on your work faster within two weeks. This flipped me out a little bit, but I didn't even think about it and kept like surfing around. And then I was look on Cleaver magazine, why I was on Carve and Cleaver. I don't know what, what, what was going on in my brain, but, um, and they have a super complicated process where um, they said their free submissions were currently closed, but if you paid them $5, you could still submit now. Plus in all genres, a voluntary $10 chip jar fee will guarantee an expedited answer within two weeks. Um, unless of course you're submitting prose so for fiction, flash, and nonfiction, your voluntary tip jar donation is $25 and guarantees a two-week um, expedited answer and a personal response from one of the editors. So that did stop me dead in my tracks. I just thought, is this like crazy genius and helpful to authors or downright mercenary? Right. And I talked with some other poets and a couple like one one of our editors, Paul Siegel, is um, really actively submitting all the time. He just sends out his work constantly. And he said he's been seeing this for a while now. So uh, so I'm wondering what what I mean, this is a thing now. This is what we're doing. <laughs> I think that's telling. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it goes back to um, what we were saying earlier about, I mean, even this, right? Like that we're blurring that line between what used to be private and what used to be public. And I've often, you know, talked to people, uh, talked to students about how the workshop structure, um, you know, kind of that Iowa workshop where you're all quiet while someone talks about your work um, that started in the 1930s um is really a way of allowing yourself to be in the room for an editorial process and it's not an accident that as, as submissions became more anonymous to bring in larger groups of people um you know academia and the workshop system um gave you a way to be in that space even when you weren't in that space and i think the lines used to be much clearer and, you know, I've, I've given a number of, of talks about, you know, publishing and kind of said, you know, you should pay someone to be a teacher. You should not pay someone to read your work. Um, and what has happened is that that line between who's your teacher and who's reading your work has has collapsed. Right. So when they're saying, if you give us ten dollars, we'll read it faster. If you give us twenty five dollars, we'll give you feedback. Right. That's that's bringing together those two roles. And um, I, I I don't want to say that it's I, I don't want to be judgmental before I'm analytic. 
Um, but I definitely think that it's a response to what people want. Um, what people want is fast responses and what people want is editorial feedback. And so it's not surprising that those are becoming things that you can pay for. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to say, but I forgot what it is. So when I remember, I'll say it again. Maybe it'll come to you. Well, let's look. Let's. I'm thinking about it from the editorial side. Um, um, I'm not sure about folks at um, Paint of Bright Quarterly, but at Harvard Review, we're very much inundated with um, submissions. And we read chiefly um, chronologically when the as the work comes in mm-hmm. we give priority to the to the oldest submissions um, we know it's a lot of work a lot of work for the most part um, it's is uncompensated for yeah um, there is you know professional development or um, there's other sorts of non-monetary value to the work that we do, but for the most part, there's no compensation for this. This is a love of labor. I'm not surprised um, in this day and age that someone could see an opportunity, a business opportunity or model right. that they want to capitalize on um, as it relates to, to their time in the office, out of the office, family, and put a dollar value to it. Um, so to some extent, um, I both applaud it. It's not something that I see us doing um, at the Harvard Review, but um, uh, it, it also goes back to what what my friend Jason was just saying, is that what people want is not just the swiftness of a response, yes or no, but truly writers are hungry for feedback. Yeah. And and they're hungry for um, feedback that will help them break through what some of them see as a very highly guarded space of conversation and privilege that they want to be a part of and any means by which they can. They'll, and that's where someone who has a business mind will Kind of lead to the lead to the chance and opportunity to give them that. Um, there are there are, they're no different to me than the writers who advertise in the back of poets and writers. Um, send me your manuscript, and I will um, do a manuscript evaluation. Um, the only difference is this is piecemeal. <laughs> Yeah. But you know what? There is, there is a difference, though. I mean, I guess maybe I shouldn't have conflated both these magazines because the one place is just saying speedy response for cash. And the other place is saying speedy response and critique for cash. And I think I hear both Major and Jason um, distinct, like accepting or allowing or understanding better uh, when someone's paying for their critique. But there are uh, many magazines that are ha- charging folks to respond fast. So they, they reject you faster, right? I mean, you, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well. That, that is what's most likely to go down, right? <laughs> uh, you know, no. Painter Bread Quarterly, right. um, you know, we accept about 1.7% of what we receive. 
and that's probably the um you know the the numbers for any magazine of our level right um so i think you know you're rolling that dice and you know most of the time you will be rejected so i, I was gonna say i also see a very distinct um difference between encouraging subscription and kind of demanding subscription and paying for faster responses or yeah. the submission fee um, yeah. because that also begins to look to me like contest fees right i mean so many right. poetry presses over the last 15 you know i mean if you go back to the 1970s there really aren't that many um first book contests mm -hmm. right i mean there's the yale younger and it's a big deal because there just aren't that many and now you know we're awash in poetry contests in large part because it's a way for poetry presses and presses that publish poetry to be able to manage themselves financially. And if everyone were buying books, they wouldn't have to do this. If there were a huge market for all of these books that were being published, mm -hmm. you know, the response and, and, you know, and poetry and, and for a while, I mean, I remember this was a huge thing in like 2003, 2004 and, and like Rebecca Wolf and there was all this, you know, people were, were really angry. Um, and I think it was Rebecca Wolf who, who kind of came along and said like, look, um, we're not getting rich on these contest fees, right? I mean, there was this perception, oh, it was strictly around poetry, right? Um, there was this perception that these contests were incredibly exploitative and that somebody was getting very, very wealthy on all of these contest submissions. And the truth is no one's getting wealthy on these contest submissions that really those entry fees are just keeping the press, not even keeping the press afloat, just keeping that one book that they publish afloat. Mm -hmm. I, I talking to Richard Seiken about this right after he won the Yale Younger and he, you know, he was submitting his manuscript and saying like, this is just me supporting poetry, right? Like this right. is just me. Like but I don't that, expect to win, but I know that if I don't do this, that these presses go under. But look, look what you're again, the contests are a different thing. You're talking about first books. So what you're gambling on is getting a book published, getting a whole book made, right? A chat book made or winning a contest that almost always has a cash prize. I'm talking about regular submissions here, single submissions that where you will just be in a literary magazine. But I think it's a response to the same it's condition. Less, well, it's less it's of a reward is what I'm it. saying. You're you're still well, you're laying down money for less of a reward to be yes. one of many in yeah. an anthology. Well, what if what if someone tips what if someone tips um well beyond the twenty five dollars? Isn't there a bit of yeah. <laughs> like yeah. pay to play going on here? Yeah. I mean, well, that's what I'm afraid of, I think. I think it's well, I guess that's that's it. It's like you throw you throw money at it and suddenly you're fast tracked. Right. And that that takes the the sort of the aesthetic rigor out of out of the deal. Right. Or the the, the luxurious moment of finding a diamond in the slush pile. Right. And mm -hmm. I guess one of the things about what we're doing is like we're, we now have this podcast that is, you know, pulling the veil back a little bit on our process. But it's also really a defensive gesture. We are slow and we're slow because we do this. Right. We actually have like deep and meaningful conversations about, you know, each, each piece that comes to us. Right. So part of me gets it. Like I get why an editor would be like, you know what, that's actually worth some money. And if my reader knew, or if my submitter knew that they were doing this kind of thing, maybe I could find an exchange for that. Maybe there is some, some economic capital I could get for the, for the labor put into that, but not if it, if it's also attached to, and you jump to the front of the line, you get, you get behind the gold 
You know what I mean? Like you're you're on the red carpet, it's, you get the special access. It's the speed right? pass at the amusement park. Yeah, <laughs> easy yeah. pass. Um, it, is. it really is. That's right. Yeah. It's the easy pass. Marin, <laughs> I, I I apologize for for stepping on you um, talking, but I was going to say that yes, it definitely creates the appearance of. Um, unfairness, right? It creates the appearance, obviously, if someone goes to the tip guy and puts in $10,000. Uh, but I think that that situation has always existed. And I know I have definitely yeah. been in situations where people who gave a lot of money to an institution are making a demand that mm-hmm. we're, that the people of the institution are acquiescing to or trying to deal with. Um, and, and it had nothing to do with tip jar. Yeah. But tip- you know, it, I think just to, to you, yes. Right. So what you're looking at there is a clash between some like, I don't know, historical model, like patronage, right? right. And the, and, and the internet, right. Like the sort of rise of a participatory form of communication, you get, you get a wicked clash on one hand, it feels like wickedly democratic. And on the other hand, it's also like, and as major said, you, you pay to play, right? Like those two things. Are, are interestingly intention, I think, on on this one. So I don't know. I would. I mean, should we do it? Well, no. <laughs> I vote no. Other thing is, yeah, there's a reason why you know editorial and marketing. There's a thick wall in most <laughs> magazine staff between editorial and marketing. Yeah. You just don't want the people who are buying the biggest ads to start dictating what you can and cannot publish. And my problem with this uh, tip jar donation um, is that it it really starts becoming a kind of, I can see this becoming a vanity kind of situation where someone puts in a hundred dollars and then suddenly editorial staff is feeling compelled to say yes to work that is mediocre at best mediocre at best and not doing the art service. And I think ultimately that's what's getting lost here is the advancement of kind of, of, you know, the finance over the, over the, over what should be the true mission of the magazine, which is to present the best work. And once you start accepting money, um, even for something like, well, let me give you some remarks on what you submitted, it's it's easily going to devolve into another kind of, of publication model. Right. Yeah. Um, I've been hesitant right. to jump in, but I think I'll just say from like an out yeah. an outside perspective, um, I feel like as if I was submitting something, I would appreciate the ma- a magazine having a much more forthright sort of statement of like, hey, we need money to keep going and you know, what we, what we need is for people to be subscribers and maybe like combining, I guess, this idea of paying a little extra, you get a subscription or something, some kind of other uh, thing and maybe like a slightly expedited response. But I definitely think this idea of guaranteeing feedback for extra money, like I would always be suspicious no matter how much I paid. I think as a, as a submitter, I would always like have this question in the back of my mind. If I'm paying somebody to give me feedback, Supposedly, it's going to be honest feedback, but how are you going to know that if you're paying money? I feel like there's for for feedback specifically. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's mm-hmm. a doubt that's a little different than like paying maybe for for some other kind of thing to be going on, like a slightly expedited response, and then also having this combination of subscription or whatever. I mean, I think it definitely speaks to the 
to, to publishing problems in general of people like not buying subscriptions, not supporting how things are being run. But I would just rather have a magazine have some kind of like forthright statement about this. Uh, and I, I would feel like then at least if I was paying something, I would have a much better idea of where this was coming from. But that's just, you know, my perspective. So <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm not coming at it from a, as much of a refined point of view, I think. But I was going to say the other factor is that prior online submissions being the standard, simultaneous submissions really were frowned upon and you couldn't do it because things weren't instantaneous. And so with people beginning to simultaneously submit and submittable, making it that much easier to do it. And um, with submission being so much easier and not having to, you know, get your stamps out and lick your envelopes and all that kind of stuff. Um, the number of submissions just increased so dramatically. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I don't think it's an accident. I mean, it's not, I don't, and I, accident makes it like it's on purpose, but it's, it is true that we are inundated by submissions in a way that we weren't before. Right. And it's almost like the copay that your insurance company demands so that you won't go see the doctor every 10 minutes if it were free. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, in a certain way, like that, those, those fees have kind of turned into like a copay to like, make sure that you're not, you know, over submitting. Right. But I mean, we do know oh, for a fact, yeah. a couple of the magazines that, um, started, I don't think I do want to name them, but a really big magazine that, um, started accepting payment for regular submissions actually hoped they would be guarding the gate a little tighter and people would think a little harder uh, before they submitted to them. And it's a nominal fee, it's maybe $3. And um, it has caused no difference whatsoever in the amount of submissions they've received. (laughs) And they were actually hoping it would stop it a little bit, you know, that people would think a little harder. Like, um, if you guys remember, uh, we painted by quarterly I was standing really firmly at that gate and saying no online submissions because I knew that there would be, um, we would be opening up the gates of hell in many, many ways. And, (laughs) and well, and we have, I mean, we consistently get submissions where people are sending to 20, 30 at a time. We get submissions where three Mm -hmm. days later they go, Oh, I've made revisions. Um, They get their stuff published elsewhere and forget to tell us. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that online submissions are as easy as they are, there's a bit of chaos um, surrounding the submission process itself. I'm, I'm going to start referring to you, me, and Marion as Cerberus. Guarding the gates to hell. I tried very, very hard not to have a submission fee charged at Bellevue Literary Review, where I'm the poetry editor. Um, and I was really, really angry about it because I really felt that particularly with the people who are submitting to us, it was it was cruel to inflict even a nominal fee, like a $5 um, on submissions. And I have to say, I, I it, it happened. Um, it hasn't reduced the numbers of submissions. No one's complained about it. If people let us know that they can't afford the fee, then we do allow them to submit the work and well, um, it's really that made in public. the magazine much more financially solid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jason, now well, everybody's going to submit yeah. to that journal and say, but I don't have any money. I know. <laughs> really? really? That's going your tax returns now. Um, we we do wait, need wait, to I start just, wrapping just... up, so let's get some final words on this idea. I, 
I do want to say though, like I, I stick by the submission fee at first I was, I was, I had, I had pretty cold feet about it, but I do think in this day and age, right. That a nominal fee on the submission to a magazine, um, and it is so easy to do through PayPal or so easy to do through whatever mechanism you're using. It is, um, I don't know, yeah, Kathy, you once used the example, it's like, you know, the Sazy. it's just the extra step that you uh, engage in, right, to, to circulate the work. And it legitimizes it, in my mind, these days. Like there's, it doesn't just legitimize the thing that you're submitting, but it's legitimizing the submission process, which means there's somebody on the other end of it working for a magazine that's making peanuts, right? Little little literary magazine with no budget, right? And this goes back to Isabella's point, like being forthright about being broke is also not a unique story in the field of literary magazines, right? The rarer story is those who are flush. So how do we make our, um, you know, lack of cash and our big hearts uh, attractive enough that people start throwing cash at us? That's the that's the question. So uh-huh. I, I would like to end my comments there and yeah. say whoever's listening should send us twenty bucks. Right. Just and there's still us. a difference. Like if you charge everybody one fee and that's it, then there's still a democracy to it, and you're still yeah. like Major said, you're you're going to publish the best work. If you say pay yeah. me extra and jump the line, yeah. As a as a young <laughs> potential writer, I would say I'm all for paying nominal submission fee, and I definitely agree with Marion. I think this legitimizes the process, and I think anybody who is really passionate about the publishing industry in general should have some kind of like sympathy or understanding that if people aren't there to support it, it's like a print book. It's like anything print yeah. related. You know, it's gonna go poof. So I think mm-hmm. that's fine, but I definitely feel. Like this tip jar setup is making me raise an eyebrow. So I can't be the only person who feels like that. the last word because he's our guest. Yeah. No, I, I, I was just as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that, um, you know, most of the arts are everyone finds themselves in this in the same position of of doing it as a labor of love, which has me believe at some point I would be down with this. I don't know if you would be down with this. Um, of paying some sort of like culture tax fee, you know, <laughs> where every oh, yeah. every household in the U.S. pays three cents towards mm-hmm. the arts in the U.S. In lieu of that, submission fees make sense to me. I like your your kind of metaphor that it's this sazy, and it it also has us realize that um, the arts is its own particular economy, and yes. just because someone sits at a desk and writes a short story or um, a poem that morning that they're also, they're entering in, they're entering into a, uh, an exchange. It's a kind of network of exchange. And oftentimes when you do that, whether you're kind of entering into a, um, um, uh, a contemporary art center or a gallery, it's not free. There's, there's overhead and administration, um, there's all sorts of costs associated with it. So, um, I, I, it makes sense to me. And, and I believe even the kind of $2, $3, $5, $5 submissions that people are paying is probably not enough. Eventually you're going to see those fees like eventually inflate to where they should be. Um, probably somewhere between the, the five and $10 range. Um, and I know some people are doing higher but um, $10 seems about fair to me. Yeah. Well, 
I appreciate everybody's time and thoughts on this and would love to know what our listeners think. You can let us know on our Facebook page. Um, the Abu Dhabi clock struck 10, and I think it's time for us to, say, to, to, to float on out of here. Thank you for your patience as we're learning as we go here in the world of podcasting. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Sign up for our email and uh, keep reading. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.